Hey guys, another episode of Eastman's Elevated here. Um, so this is a double release week. I released an episode earlier this week, and then I just really wanted to get out this episode and get this information to you guys. It's I sat down with Guy Eastman, and, and we talked all about winter range conditions and how different states had, had fared with the rough winter, and then how to be successful after a tough winter. And so it's just so timely with, with 2017 tag applications coming due and, and all of us are trying to plan out our falls that I just wanted to get you guys this information so you could make the, the best judgment and the best call on where to hunt this fall. Um, sitting down with Guy is sure a treat. I, I joke that he's kind of like the, like the oracle of Western hunting. He, he just, uh, he has such a, a high knowledge base and he's so plugged into Western hunting. He, he talks to different biologists and then he's got different contacts and friends in different states. And, and then he's got a ton of experience too, where he's hunted a, a bunch of different units, different states and, and been successful on public land on, on giant bulls and giant bucks. And so, um, he, he just really is a wealth of knowledge. So really fun conversation, fun sitting down with him and, and getting to have these one-on-ones where I can ask questions and, and get all this great information out to you guys. So I learned something and enjoyed it. And I, and I think you guys will too. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Savage Arms. Savage is just a great company. There are no frills, no gimmicks, and they focus all their effort on, on building precision and building accurate rifles. Uh, and they do a great job. All us guys at Eastman's have been using their rifles here for years, and and, and uh, they, they're just a great company that builds a super accurate rifle. So I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast, and go give them some love, guys. They build a super rifle. Um, what we have going on over there at Eastman's, uh, I mentioned this before briefly, but, uh, we have this article coming out and it's written by Todd Helms and, and he's one of our Eastman staff writers. Um, but Todd Helms, it's called the rewarming drill. And we also have a video piece that's going to come out with this article, uh, where, where Todd met up with John Barclow and John Barclow is one of the head guys at, at Sitka and just a super knowledgeable guy who's in the special forces. And he really knows a lot about clothing and and so Todd writes this article and he dives in deep into the rewarming drill and the rewarming is so important for us guys hunting the west uh, you know you never know when you're going to get soaking wet from a rainstorm or fall in a creek or or even just get cold under the conditions being in the outdoors and and this talks all about rewarming your body and keeping yourself safe so you don't get hypothermic and and, and Todd does a great job of talking about different clothing types and how they wick moisture away from your body, their insulating values, talks about tent being a windbreak, different sleeping bags and how they work, and even dives into to food and diet, how to warm yourself up from the inside out. And, and, and then he also talks about how you can warm yourself up through exertion and, and, and warm up your body that way, but just a super article. And then the, the video where Todd jumps in the river and, and rewarms himself in the winter, and now that's commitment to an article or to a piece. So uh, really cool. Make sure you guys check out that. And, and uh, with that, let's get this thing rolling. Eastman's Elevated, Guy Eastman. Here we go. Okay, I'm here with Guy Eastman. Guy, how are you today? Good. How are you doing, Brian? Good. Uh, nice to run over to the office here and get some of these recorded. Nice to sit down with you. Yeah, you picked a nice day to come over here. Oh, it's man. snowing and blowing anyway. Yeah, beautiful. Highway was a little slick there in between Livingston and, oh, about 100 miles out of Livingston. It was a, a two-man bob, bobsled or a one-man bobsled <laughs> in and through there. But after that, it wasn't bad at all. Nice, nice. Well, mm-hmm. good. Glad you uh, were able to make it down. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk to you a little bit. We've had such a tough winter here this year, and especially you guys here in Wyoming. You guys have had a, a gnarly winter here. And so I just wanted to talk to you just about some of the conditions of the winter range this year. Um, how's Wyoming doing? Has it kind of let off a little bit here as we start getting closer to spring? Uh, it's You're right. It's been a really rough winter. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways they measure these things. But by any measure I've seen, it's been, it's been tough. Mm-hmm. It's been real tough. Um, a lot of snow. Uh, the winter came early. It came hard. It stayed for a long time. Um, we had a lot of deep snow and cold temperatures for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but toward the end of February, we got that thaw that we normally get in January, mm-hmm. and it warmed way up um, and, and gave things a little bit of a break. Um, I'm afraid that a lot of the damage is already done, though, just for the because of the extent of 
the winter that we've had for how long it lasted before we got that thaw. I mean, it came right before Thanksgiving and stayed until the middle of February. Hard, hard. I mean, and we're talking lots of snow. I know. Well, that deep snow is really bad for them. And then also the cold temperatures and getting that ice layer on top of that snow where they can't get down to that feed. Um, But boy, boy, that's tough on those animals, tough on the elk and tough on the deer. Yeah, that winter range in western Wyoming, I usually say if they get 30 below and 30 inches of snow, we're going to lose deer. And and they had 40 below and 40 inches of snow this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's been rough. I've been in contact with the biologists over there on emails. I've been writing the MRS for Wyoming. Okay. They're not sure what they're going to encounter for for winter kill yet. It's you know they don't know if it's going to be ten percent or eighty percent, but they're going to have some, and uh, they're definitely taking the precautions to uh, already to assume that there's there's going to be a, a pretty significant winter kill. Wow, ten to eighty yeah, percent. Yeah, it's going to be bad. Wow. Uh, some places in Idaho, they've said they've had they're expecting sixty to eighty percent. Wow. Yeah. Oh man, that really sets you back. That takes quite a few years to recover from too, because a lot of the deer and elk that that die off are the older age class, and so it takes another five, six years to build up that older age class again. Yeah. Generally, what happens in Wyoming, what we see happen here is is like you said, the older age bucks, mm-hmm. older age class bucks, and probably does, but mostly bucks will die off, and then the fawns will abort and the yearlings will die off. Okay. And so what you end up having is a is big gaps in okay. the age class. So when you go to high country this fall, yep. you'll probably have a hard time finding an old, old buck mm-hmm. and you'll ha- you'll see very few, almost no fork and horns. Okay. You know, and that that gap in that age group will just progress up through through the years. Yeah, it has to grow its way yes, out. It yeah. has to grow its way out and that usually takes, you know, four or five year process. Wow. And so um well, we had a bad winter. 2007 was a bad winter here and in a lot of places. And then wasn't 2012, we had another one that was fairly bad on the winter kill around yeah. here? Uh, yeah, 2010. 2010. 2010, okay. we had a bad winter. And so they've been coming, I wouldn't say they're not this bad. This winter, they're talking, when you combine snowfall with temperature, they're going back to 1984, maybe 1978. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah, I wrote a piece yeah. in the E! News said, if you don't remember a, a winter like this, it's probably because you haven't lived long enough. Yeah. We're talking almost 40 years. Yeah, born in 1980, so I don't yeah. remember one like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was 71, so I was a kid when those winters happened. I remember yeah. it was it was pretty, pretty tough. But, I, you know, I don't want people to get too hung up on that. You know, it it is bad, but it's not the end of the world. No, you're right. It's not the end of the world. And I've looked at the, you know, records book entries and following poor winters or tough winters like we've had, they still managed to kill big bucks the next year, Mm -hmm. you know. And so it doesn't mean everything's wiped out because what does survive is going to show up to some unbelievable habitat yeah for sure well and it's not all areas that are affected that hard either there's some core areas that get worse winter you know that are higher elevations where they do worse there and and like you say the feed is so good after a good winter like this you get that big snowpack and that high country feed is unreal and so no you're right it isn't um doom and gloom all of it uh those deer that do survive can grow giant that next season and i know like that spot I hunt in Colorado, I go up there and on a dry year, you know, maybe out of 50 bucks, two will be non-typical. Well, in a wet year like this year, like the the winter after 2007, you go up there and half the bucks have non-typical stickers and kickers and inline. So you're right. It does make for good feed and the bucks that do survive grow giant. So yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to know whether to hold your points or to go all in, but I, I think you just got to find units that weathered better or, you know, units where they have good winter range where they can get down there and survive and, and try to pick and seek out those units. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's not like the entire West has been demolished. Yep. It's uh, Wyoming, Western Wyoming, anything West of the Continental Divide is, is not good. Yep. Um, anything South of I-80 is not good. Uh, Colorado, the center of the state. It's pretty rough, but I've been cat hunting this winter on the the front down in Colorado, mm-hmm. above Colorado Springs and down by Pueblo and all that, and they have had a very mild winter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you got to find areas like that 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 maybe haven't had such a bad winter that you want to burn your points on or hold off for another year. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the desert southwest, 
mark my words, I may regret saying this, the Desert Southwest is going to be lights out this fall. Really? Because they have had, you know, they're not as susceptible to winter kill like us. It, mm -hmm. it turns into moisture, which turns into growth because they need the moisture down there. That's what makes those animals tick is is the moisture in, in southern Utah, southern Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona are going to be outstanding. Oh. My, my in-laws live in Flagstaff, Arizona. They've had more snow than they've had in 15 years down there. Okay. Northern New Mexico set a 100-year record for snowfall. Mm -hmm. You know, and those animals are all down, migrate out to the desert floor. So mm -hmm. they're not trapped like our deer are here in yep. the winter conditions. So when they return to that upper, higher country, it's going to be incredible and okay. if we get a good monsoon this you know it comes in and uh, you know in june july it's it's going to be record setting okay down there. so, so their their biggest challenge down there is drought and yes. so when you get a wet year like this and a good snowpack then they get all the feed they need and then those bucks can grow giant down yep. through there yep okay yep. and then our deer are different they, they'll follow um you know those deer in western wyoming they'll follow the snow melt up as it goes back up into the high country. Yep. What happens, we have so much snow that they're going to hang lower in the spring and summertime before they get up into those basins, and those basins will stay green and lush almost all summer, mm -hmm. you know, clear until late fall, mm -hmm. where on a dry year, they might, those basins will dry out, you know, grow, be stunted growth and dry out mm -hmm. early. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think we're going to see some really big high mountain deer this year, but not many of them. Okay. Yep. If I had to guess. Yep. Well, but, it, but it all improves the habitat long term. It does. Because the yep. deer don't eat everything up there, neither do the elk. And so mm -hmm. you have a good year like this. It grows way more feed than they can all eat. And so the next year, these deer are going to turn up to the wind range next year. And it'll be in great shape because all that snow is going to turn into deeper sagebrush, more grass, more brush for them to winter in. Mm -hmm. So it's long term, it's going to be an improvement. But short term here, it's going to be a little rocky, I yep. think. For sure. Well, and, and that's, you know, I know the most about Montana as I live there. And I know a lot of our spots do really good in high moisture years, like the breaks. They have easier winters there. It's lower elevation, 2,500 feet. And so we don't get a big winter die off there or in eastern Montana. And, there, and then our mountains, too, we get, you know, if it's a good winter range, we get a lot of windblown slopes. And then those elk can live on those windblown slopes. And, and going around looking at the winter range around Montana, we had a rough start to our winter. It eased off, but it, it wind blows all those south facers. And so those elk have a place to feed on those windblown south facers. So they tend to winter better. I mean, do you think that's something that you could seek out in Wyoming is like windblown slopes or a better winter range where the deer and elk could survive a little bit better? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Here in Wyoming, especially in where we live on this side of, of Yellowstone, our windswept slopes blow off like yours. And mm -hmm. the elk, I think the elk are going to be fine mm -hmm. here. Um, yep. We've had a really rough winter here locally. But I think from what I've heard and seen, the elk are doing okay. They're out okay. on those windswept slopes, especially the bulls. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're tough. Yeah. A bull elk can handle a lot of weather. You almost can't kill them with, with <laughs> weather, you know. And so, yeah. And they're going to do fine. Maybe some of the calves will have struggle, um, you know, as it's their first year and they don't really know how to winter out. And if they're, you know, not real healthy going into winter, they could have some trouble. But as far as the bull elk hunting in Wyoming, I think there's not going to be much of a problem there. Now, over in Jackson, maybe a little bit because those elk winter on the elk refuge and it depends on how stubborn the government is to feed them and when they feed them and what they feed them and the predators over there. Cause mm -hmm. we, that's the other issue that we're having in Wyoming and Idaho with these heavy snows and winters is the predators, you know, kill easier. Oh, they wreak it havoc, concentrates right? that wildlife yeah. to an easy kill zone for predators. Yeah. And so that can be a real issue. Well, and those wolves, they have such big pads and those cats that they can run on top of that snow. And so when you get that deep snow, you know, it just makes them susceptible to those predators, like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. 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 They just have a heyday with them, which is too bad. But it sounds like you guys are going to get a wolf season here, hopefully. I think so. Hopefully, yeah. uh, you know, they ran it through the court system and whatever that they do with all that disaster. But it, <laughs> they got reversed. Our management plan got reversed by an appeals court of three judges, 3-0. Nobody voted against it. Everybody voted for Wyoming in that case. Oh, that's great. Um, there was some stipulations giving some timing that Wyoming couldn't just start going shooting wolves right away. There's some stipulations in that court documentation that 
that might keep us from having a wolf season this fall. Mm-hmm. But uh, according to Game of Fish, it is possible we could have our wolf season back by October 1 is when it usually opens, I believe. Oh, that is super. That would really help out down we here. Really to be able, oh, you guys do. We've yeah. had four, almost four years of completely unchecked predation oh. you know, on our, our elk and, and especially the moose. I mean, they've just been decimated. Yeah, that's like around in Montana, too. We, yeah. You could hardly find a moose anymore. It's yeah, just I mean, been decimated. That is literally, we're looking at regional extinction of Shiris moose in certain areas. Mm. They, they flew their airplane in Yellowstone. They do their moose count about, I think, it last month in February when they're kind of out of the willows and they could see them. They flew six straight hours, couldn't find a single moose. They had oh. to come back, fuel up, go back up there, fly for another seven. I think they counted 22 moose. Mm. You know, Jackson Hole used to, when I was a kid, they estimate there was three to 4,000 moose in that valley. Now they count, they estimate it, that population at less than 300. Wow. I mean, it's not even sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, like 220 moose. They can't find and, each other to mate. You no, know, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a complete wildlife disaster. That is a wildlife disaster. And same thing there. Those wolves are getting them in that deep yep. snow. Yeah, they can't get away from them, and, and that's, I mean, the wolves they brought in here from Canada, that is their prime food. Yes. Prey. They so know how to kill they moose. They know moose. Yep. And these moose are dinky compared to the ones they're used to, <laughs> yeah. the Canadian moose, so they're yep. like, this is this is easy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not really, my dad has a poor cow moose that lives around his house up there in Crandall. He's watched her for almost seven years now, and she has yet to raise a single calf to maturity. Oh my gosh! Every spring horrible. she has a calf, and by the Fourth of July, it's oh, done. that is horrible. Huh? Yeah. And, and wolves, things. The thing some people don't realize is predators are smart, and mm-hmm. they live a long time. Yeah. I mean, grizzly bear can live well over twenty years in mm-hmm. the wild, and they're like the monkeys in North America. So they're smart. Mm-hmm. They know. Okay, the elk are gonna, the cow elk are gonna calf right here. Mm-hmm. I just gotta wait. Watch until uh, the middle of June, and I go up and scrape, scrape them all up. Oh, yeah. And I grid off this meadow, and I'll have calf uh, elk for, for two weeks to eat here. You oh, know, wolves yeah. are the same way. So the ones they learned our prey's habits mm-hmm. and seasons, it, it almost becomes mm-hmm. you know, just unfair game to them. And, and it's changed the behavior. As you know, mm-hmm. as an elk hunter, it's changed the behavior. It had well. The the wolves were introduced here, and, and our elk had never seen wolves. They didn't know how to get away from them, you know. And so, yeah, they've had to evolve over time, and they're getting better at fending them off and choosing better locations. And you know, I don't know about the cats, but yeah, our elk has have have had to evolve from these wolves. You know that they just weren't used to that predator being around. Right. So yeah, it's taken a while, and like I say, Montana's doing better now. We're starting to recover from it, just because we're able to control the populations of wolves a little bit. So it's helped a bunch there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's been a. I mean, some states hit worse than others. I yep. mean, Idaho's probably the worst. It then is Montana, and then we're third. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they in the low low zone in Idaho. I read a report the other day because I've been researching all this predator stuff lately. They did a study, and they collared I don't know a couple hundred cow elk in the, that zone and over, almost 95% of them were killed by wolves. Mm. Yeah. That, and that includes hunters mm. were less than 10% of the, the take of all, the overall take of, of the collared elk they had. So it's just, the problem is, is when you're managing wildlife, you can't unplug that. No, nope. the hunters, you can say, Hey, we're going to cut the quota back. We're going to shorten the season. There's all, it's a controlled predator prey environment mm-hmm. with these super predators i'm talking wolves grizzlies mountain lions you can't unplug that no they're feeding hunting 24 7 yeah and it just becomes that's a variable once you drop that variable into it mm-hmm. it's like putting chlorine in your fish tank mm-hmm. it's just a matter of time you're gonna have a mess on your hands oh you're so right yeah that low low elk city area of idaho was hit so hard they used to have an elk herd of twenty thousand elk and yeah. now you know, they're down less than 2,000. And they've been able to hunt and try to control wolves. But like you say, they can't unplug it. Once you put them in there and that super predator in there, yeah, they've just taken that elk herd down and decimated them. And you don't see any more elk over there. You see elk all the time driving that highway and nothing anymore. Yeah, it's really sad. It is sad. And in our valley, in Montana, in the Madison Valley, we fared better. We were farther from the park, so it took the wolves a little while to get to us. Um, but when they did get there, they couldn't resist the 
um, the cow calves, you know, the bovine cow, when they were having their calves, would have them down there and they could smell them. And so they'd run down and get those calves and then they'd call the government trappers and shoot them. And so we were able to control our wolf populations before we had a season where places like the Paradise Valley, you know, you could hardly find an elk over there anymore where they used to be overrun with elk. Yeah. So, um, no, it's been a major problem, but it's good that we're starting to be able to control them. It's definitely going to help. It's just going to take a few years of recovery or, or multiple years of recovery. I think so. Yeah. I think, and we've already seen here locally in Wyoming, where I'm from, they, they're, we're seeing rebounds. I mean, mm-hmm. it's starting good. to elk are rebounding. Um, even the moose in some areas are starting to, uh, to rebound a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, we're lucky over here in that our, our wolves follow the, for the most part, follow the elk, and so they drift in and out of Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And I think they drift in the Yellowstone for the summer, mm-hmm. and so it gives our wildlife here locally a break. Oh, I see. You know, and yep. so they're not being hammered on 24-7 constantly mm-hmm. like some places, like where you're from, mm-hmm. or Idaho. Yep. You know, where they don't have Yellowstone as that buffer to kind of drift in and out and give the local wildlife, resident wildlife, a break. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that's helped us, even though we're not hunting the wolves. You know, it's, it's helped our herds to bounce back. Yeah, for sure. They move out of here and give your yeah. herds a break. Yeah. yeah. I know that's a fact that to be true because the biologist tells us that, but also um, they've shot. When we did have a hunting season, we were up by my dad's place. They were shooting the wolves that had collars on them that were actually Lamar Valley wolves. Oh, wow. That is crazy. Which caused a whole nother stir, but mm-hmm. it, they drifted out of Lamar mm-hmm. Valley into Wyoming for the winter where mm-hmm. guys were shooting them so yep i think that's probably also one of the big hang-ups with all these groups and the wyoming wolf season i bet you're right because we get most of the wolves from yellowstone because they're not going to stay in yellowstone there's nothing there no there isn't yes no yeah so they come this way yep and uh, then wyoming takes care of them if we have wolf season okay so that causes a lot of issues with people who want to go up there in the summer and hear wolves watch them them yep makes sense um so so what do you think the average guy's plan should be for a year like this where we've had such a tough winter in these states. Do you think um, it, it's, you know, you definitely don't want to burn a whole lot of points in an area if they've got 80% kill of their of their deer. So I mean, what kind of advice would you give guys for coming into a season like this? Uh, I would, you know, per, I'm speaking from a personal perspective here because I have a lot of points in, in quite a few different states. Um, although Wyoming doesn't, we don't have points for residents, so it doesn't matter here, but say I didn't. I, you know, I'd be really leery to burn, you know, if I have more than five, six points, definitely into the range of max, which is 10 here. I'd be real leery to burn that. Mm-hmm. I'd be looking more at, say, second choice options. Okay. Um, there's some decent general hunts that are you can get on second choice and not use your points. Mm-hmm. They'll still get you out there hunting or yep. look, like you said earlier, look for some areas that weren't hit as hard um, that are still good hunts. Um, that you can get in on. Um, I'm going to personally concentrate more on the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I always apply for Arizona and whatnot, but this year I'm applying for New Mexico, which usually I don't apply there because I know the odds and with their outfitter tags, landowner tags, all that stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's The odds are kind of low, but they don't have points. It's right. just a straight up old school draw. So yep. I'm going to apply down there. Good. Just, you know, usually I don't like hunting down there because it's so far. It is, yeah. I mean, in that elk, rut time frame you've got that 30-day window to hit and you go takes you three days to get down there three days to get home five days to hunt you burn two or three weeks of your prime elk season mm-hmm. um, but on a year like this it's worth gambling going down there and and, and hunt down there where a rough winter is actually a, a good thing mm-hmm. you know so kind of shift your your focus to the south southern part of the uh-huh. u.s and then pockets that are are still you know that didn't get get hit hard because mm-hmm. i'm telling you it's going to be i've seen bad winters before and like i said earlier it can be the hunting can still be okay and the, the quality can be real high but the volume of animals will be real low which really wears on a guy yep when you're not seeing a lot of deer oh and, for sure and you kill a big buck on the last day that cures everything right <laughs> yeah. but up until then it's pretty demoralizing and so to burn you know 8 10 12 points on something like that boy you know Preference points come hard these yeah, days. Yeah, that's mean, a big gamble, isn't it? 10, 12 years is a long time to wait. Sure is. Um, yeah. So that um, Colorado was hit hard, I know, in the central part of the state, probably the southern end of the state, and the eastern part of the state did okay. Yeah. Um, 
you know, Utah, I know they were hit hard, but also in the southern end of their state, I think it's been all right. Have you heard anything about Nevada, how their winter's been? Uh, Nevada's had a lot of lot of snow because of those storms have hit. I was in California this winter. They slam California, go over, you know, hit the Sierras, and then go into Nevada. Mm-hmm. And so Nevada's been been very white. I mean, you, but they thaw out early, mm-hmm. you know, because they're in that desert southwest zone and so i don't think it's been real detrimental as long as that wildlife can just keep going on out to the desert floor it's going to be okay yep you know and i think that's the case with nevada their mountain ranges aren't super deep like ours yep exactly they're just if you look at them on a map it's just one spine yep just giant ridges and Mm -hmm. so those deer and elk can get out away from it but it, the moisture is really going to help Nevada, I think. Okay. I think Nevada is going to be a real positive state this Okay, year. good deal. Maybe. You know, the antelope might be a little tough. I don't think they, you know, they winter as well as, say, the elk and deer. But I think Nevada, I've seen on the news, they've had a lot of flooding already as all that snow is thawed out and dumped out all that moisture out of the mountains down to the, you know, through those drainages. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, good deal. So look towards Nevada and then. I know Idaho's been hit pretty hard. Wyoming's yeah. been hit pretty hard. Montana's actually fared okay, you know, just because of the windblown slopes and yeah. um, some of the lower elevation wintering grounds. You guys have ha- kind of sat in a vortex there. Mm-hmm. You know, those storms have come straight from the West Coast over they Nevada, have. Utah, Idaho, slammed us. And you guys, it's all gone kind of south of you guys. Yeah, for I, sure. I have some friends in eastern Montana, and they said they've had a real mild winter, mm-hmm. you know, which is good for them because they need it. Yep. Oh, they have. Too. The blue tongue there got yep. really bad. Yep. I, maybe that's the 2012 I was re- remembering yep. was the blue tongue there. But yeah, yep. we're just starting to recover out there from that in eastern Montana. But yep. we're finally starting to see those older age class deer. I think one dad killed this year was six and a half out in eastern yep. Montana. So that was really nice to see. They're starting to get back to that older age class. Yeah, I talked to when I was hunting up there this fall, I was talking to one of the game fish guys. And he said they when they did their deer counts, it was the highest counts they've had in a lot of those areas in, in over 10 years. Yep, for yeah, sure. So it's really bounced. And the antelope have bounced back nicely. Yes, they have. I actually drew the eastern Montana antelope tag last year. Me and my buddy Rod, you know, we killed a couple of 80 inches in one afternoon. Oh, it was, wow. It was really, really good quality antelope and quite a few of them. Okay. The most I've seen in 10 years there. So. Oh, way cool. Yep. So, so they're bouncing back. Spot, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yep. So you just looked for these different spots and it's not like you stop hunting. It's not all doom and gloom, but you got to go to places where they wintered better and concentrate on those areas that benefit from all the snowpack. Right, right. And, and all is not lost in Wyoming either. I mean, you get, we're talking most of the high demand, high you know, high profile country, which is Western Wyoming, mm-hmm. Northern Wyoming, around Cody Jackson, down to Evanston, that, but some of the central stuff is going to be really good. Some of those desert units for deer, mm-hmm. I think are going to be good. I mean, they're, that moisture is going to turn into grass. Grass is going to get deep. Those does are going to have fawns in that grass. Their coyotes are going to have a harder time finding them because they're easier for, you know, for the does to hide them. So you get good fawn recruitment. Okay. I think it's going to be a positive thing in the desert units, for Wyoming's elk and deer, mm-hmm. which I mean, we're getting some pretty good elk in the in the center part of the state here now too. Yeah, you guys are. Yeah, yeah. no, you guys, your guys' elk are doing really well. Yeah, when you look at the how they distribute the elk population, the western side of the state because the wolves have really has really dropped off. I mean, mm-hmm. like we're talking a third of, or a quarter of what it used to be, but the central part of the state and the southern part of the state has tripled or quadrupled. So statewide, our elk population has been stable mm-hmm. over the last 25 30 years okay but it's been redistributed is the difference oh, i see yeah and it makes it tougher for hunters because in the central and southern part of the state it's more more private property okay so it's harder to get access to hunt it makes it a little more difficult versus the massive forests and public land tracks that the western part of the state has so we have a lot of elk there but some of them are inaccessible mm-hmm. to most guys which, yeah where you have to do more homework with your maps and that kind of Doable. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, good. Yeah, I think guys can make a good game plan for this season. Just having that information and knowing how states weather and knowing what to look for in a unit or, or where to look. And like you say, a lot of places are really going to benefit from all the snowpack. So I think that's a good thing. You got some big hunts planned this year, huh? Really looking forward to 2017 and got your show season just about over. You guys got one more show left. One more, one more show down Salt Lake, and uh, and then we're we're done with shows. That's 
been kind of a long winter. My wife's really upset. She doesn't get to go anywhere. She has to sit here and shovel the sidewalk. <laughs> I go to California, Las Vegas, all these places. And, and uh, so it's been a really long, long winter, but, but we're almost, almost done. Yeah, good deal. And so I was talking to Dan last night. I had dinner over at his place, but he said uh, that he's going to travel with you, and you guys are going to hunt uh, ibex and then Marco Polo sheep. Man, that's a wild, huh? That's going to be an adventure. Yeah, that is. Uh, that's going to be quite an adventure. That one's been, you know, ten years in the making. I've been saving up my money and, yeah. and whatnot. I mean, there's just no other way to get around it. Those hunts are just so expensive. Yeah, because those foreign governments are involved in them. Yep. Everybody needs paid along the way. But, you know, my grandfather had the chance to go over there and do it, and he never did, and he always regretted that. And then my dad kind of regrets not doing it. And so I said, you know what, I'm I'm not going to be a third generation to regret that. I'm going to go do it. So Yeah, good for you. And like you say, it's not easy, but you never regret those experiences in life. I mean, in the end, what do you really have when you're all said and done? And so if you just save your pennies and plan for a hunt like that and, and – and just like you, I want to hunt sheep someday, and they're tough to come across a tag, and I haven't, they haven't drawn my lucky number yet, but I just keep saving my pennies and figure I'm going to go hunt dolls, or I'm going to go, I'm going to go hunt something and get that experience and hunt that rugged country that they live in. But you know, good for you for pulling the trigger and doing something like that. That's going to be awesome. It's going to be quite an experience. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. But you know, I mean, I think you're right. Everybody, everybody has to have that, you know, that quote-unquote bucket list item or that you know that thing that they really are motivated for you know mm -hmm. that carrot dangling out there whatever it is i mm -hmm. mean some guys it may be a six-point bull elk mm -hmm. some guys it's a doll sheep or yep. you know whatever it is you got to have that i read an article it was nothing to do with hunting but it was kind of along those lines uh, in a magazine about motivation and, and the whole gist of it was what's your Everest mm -hmm. I mean some people want to climb Everest that's their lifelong dream well everybody has to have that Everest and it doesn't have to be Mount Everest but it's you know that something that motivates you keep you going oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch buck is it Whatever it is, you got to always keep that carrot of motivation out oh, there. Oh, passion in life is everything. To be passionate yeah. about something and something you love to do and train and makes you a better person throughout the year, nutrition and fitness, and, you know, that's a good thing. And so to have passion in life is everything, you know. Yeah. And, and I love hunting bulls and love hunting boxes. 200-inch boxes, those are sure tough to come by, but that's what drives me is back in those mountains. They, they live in that gnarly country where you think you'd see sheep or or goats, or a lot of times you do see goats and sheep up in there, but um, those big bucks are sure tough to kill, and it's it's neat because they're an animal that everybody can hunt and everybody strives for, but they're really difficult to get, you know, they're wily. Yeah, it's, I'm, there's no question it is probably the toughest trophy to get in North America, in mm -hmm. my opinion. I mean, even money can't buy you a buck like that in most cases. And like you said, it's not like sheep where it's beyond reach for most guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, you can go out there and hunt for a big buck in multiple States every year. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you play it right and not spend a ton of money, Absolutely. but it's, there is no slam dunks in that world. No, it is, it's tough. And it's as tough a trophy. I think as there is on the planet. Absolutely. And, and they're smart. Yes, they're so smart. Well, there's so many guys after them and so few harvested, you know. Yeah, no, they're wily. They've got good instincts and live in that gnarly country and just tough to harvest. But yeah, that's what drives me. I love those big bucks in that high country or any country for that matter. But that high country is really special when they're living up in that stuff. Yeah, they really, those are almost like a subspecies of mule deer. They those are. high country bucks are a whole different, you know, I think the low country bucks back in my grandfather's age kind of gave mule deer a bad name so to speak because mm -hmm. a lot of the whitetail riders from back east in that day and i'm talking the 50s and 60s would come out here and hunt deer and there was tons of deer back then i mean there's no shortage of mule deer by any means it was the golden age of it and they'd jump a buck up and he'd run out there 200 yards and stop and look back watch mm -hmm. his backtrack and they pound him mm -hmm. like, oh mule deer there's nothing to this these deer are dumb that's not the deer we live with today, no. especially in the high country. I mean, those bucks have, they cannot survive the, that environment without having a, you know, a sixth sense. Mm -hmm. It's a different day and age for it. And it's, uh, you know, they had the heydays back then and those, those bucks were more prevalent in a, in a bunch of different areas. And now they're still out there. I mean, they're still in the magazine. We just had the, the mule deer issue. They're killing great bucks all the way throughout all these states. 
you know, they're just, you just got to work at it. You got to do your research and figure out what units you are and, and train for them and then get in there and hunt hard. But they're still feasible. I see those bucks every year that go, you know, those monster 30 inch and 200 inch deer. They are out there for the taking. They're just really tough to harvest. Yeah. Yeah. They are really, and that's what makes them extra special. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what everybody appreciates and respects a 200 inch mule deer. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. That's where I've got a tough decision to make. I, you know, I've got that. Uh, I'm I'm due for my Colorado tag this year, and it's just a matter of whether or not I'm going to go hunted or not with the winter range. So yeah, I guess just talk to the biologists down there and see how the winter range did, and see what they think their kill was for the winter kill, and try to make a decision and go for it. Yeah, and that's part of the issue. Is a lot of these states don't they don't do their counts until after the draw deadlines. So I know it. Don't really know how exactly the winter is going to going to turn out but I, if you're a bow hunter it makes it a little easier because you're not talking buku points exactly you know, you're investing in a yep. lot of those hunts anyway yep exactly it's almost worth it to roll the dice yeah yeah well and that's the most knowledge i've got about the winter ranges and winter habitat is just talking to you with your research because you're right it's really tough to find out there and, and our magazine does a great job of putting out stuff and you know about the winter ranges and how the deer herds are doing but um, we're really putting out the best information about winter ranges out there. So this is really good for guys. Yeah, yeah. It's really important, you know, to plug in on that. I mean, I, I've looked at some of the charts, you know, over time, and you can kind of tell where some of the bad winters are by mm-hmm. the success rates the next year. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, it does make a difference. But you just have to plug in to uh, resources like the magazine, our e-news, and, you know, wherever else you can get it, talk to biologists and, and people in the area and kind of see what, what is going on and, uh, and try to find you know pockets that aren't as bad as, as others because mm-hmm. you know snow isn't a bad thing mm-hmm. it's a good thing mm-hmm. it's just too much of it could be a bad thing so I mean there's there's still places I'm sure out west they're going to do real well next fall yeah there's going to be some big bucks and some big bulls hit the deck somewhere yeah yep. so. and you just want to be a part of it so yep. in one way or another exactly <laughs> don't, sit, don't sit totally out just, no just don't. rearrange your plan a little bit yeah rearrange your plan and don't burn all your points for an area you might hold back on there and like you say look at some of the second choices or different states that you haven't looked at easier units but yeah still get out there and hunt because there are going to be some big critters that hit the yep. dirt exactly yeah for sure so Marco Polo and Ibex, it's just so wild. Those things curl around sometimes two or two and a half times as Marco Polos, right? Yes. And uh, so you've been saving for the last 10 years. So you're going to go, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Which country are you guys going to? Tajikistan. Tajikistan. Yeah. Okay. And that borders Afghanistan. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is yeah. wild. And in fact, we're going in November, which is kind of the prime time. It's it's kind of interesting their sheep rut the same time ours do, November, okay. December. Mm-hmm. Um, it's November, it's high elevation, it's going to be real cold, but um, interestingly enough, it's not really far north. Mm-hmm. So the elevation's high, but it's not super brutal like what we're used to here in the dead of winter. You think, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I'm at 14,000 feet in December, it's going to be unbearable, but it's about like it is in Wyoming in November or Montana. Okay. You know, it's windy, lots of wind, mm-hmm. um, you know, lows around zero, highs in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not like you're in the North Pole. Yeah, for because sure. Because it's about the same, interestingly enough, about the same uh, latitude or on the Earth as, uh, as, say, I think it's like Mexico City. It's not. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so it's, it's high elevation. Further, but toward the equator. Towards the, the equator. High. Okay. Yeah, that is just wild. And so um, I've seen those things hunted at extreme elevations. Like what kind of elevations are you going to be hunting those at? Well, they come down, of course, to rut. Mm-hmm. And so they're not quite as high as they are in the summer. Uh, so we're going to be, I think the camp's at like 12.5. We're hunt up to 13.7, maybe 14. Uh, mm-hmm. Earlier in the year, they sometimes they'll have to hunt, you know, 16,000 feet elevation. Oh, that is crazy. I it, can't it imagine. Pretty, pretty intense. Uh-huh, for sure. Um, yeah, boy, oh, boy. And that elevation, we were talking about it earlier before the podcast, but that elevation is just a killer, isn't it? And guys don't realize it. I mean, we get to come from, from 5,000 feet elevation or 4,500 where you're at, you know, and then travel there. But you go to 12,000 feet, like where you were hunting elk last year, it takes a wear on you, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Your whole life is, is become slow motion. Yes. You know? I mean, when you're camped at 12,000, hunt up to 13, 
it's just a whole different different level of of life because you're you're needing a lot of fluids. You all you do your body just wants to sleep. Mm -hmm. You don't want to eat, which you is the opposite. You need to eat mm -hmm. a lot of calories because you burn. I can't remember the the actual data for it, but you burn a lot of calories just surviving. Mm -hmm. you know, just sleeping at 13,000 feet, you burn like four or five times what you do in your bed. Oh, home. crazy. You, know? so yep. you need all those calories and, and, and that fluid, or otherwise mm -hmm. you get in a deficit and you can get in real trouble. Yeah, well, and like we were talking, you know, you, you, you feel like sleeping and you're tired, but you're sleep deprived because the altitude doesn't let you sleep. You're up all the time or you can't fall asleep. Yep. Same thing with your appetite. Your appetite suppresses where you don't feel like eating when what your body really needs is to eat. Yep. But all of a sudden, you're just not hungry. You don't want to eat anything up there. Yep. And yep. it takes a couple days to get used to where you can finally get a night's sleep up there. And like you say, everything just slows down. Your legs feel heavier. Everything is more labored up there, tougher to catch your breath. And, and like you say, guys get in real trouble. And I, I've talked about it before, but I've had a couple buddies. You know, I'm not sure if it's altitude sickness or exhaustion sickness for pushing too hard at that high altitude where, you know, they bonk, they stuck in the tent, they're throwing up, can't keep down water, can't keep down food. And their whole hunt that they've trained the whole year for is over just because of the altitude and the pace and the, and the shape they're in. So it is spooky dangerous. Yeah, yep, it is. And I think a lot some guys, you know, and I've fallen in this trap too myself is, is pushing themselves too far too fast. Mm -hmm. And you constantly have to remind yourself, oh yeah, I'm at 13,000 feet. Yeah. I got to go. You got to put your whole hunt in low gear. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not running from one ridge to the other. you got to be more cognizant of how far you're going to. Oh, I'm going to go check this basin. Okay, well, give yourself an extra hour to get there, mm -hmm. you know, chasing the, the morning sun coming up. Yeah. Things like that because you can, you just, it's real easy to overdo it. And you got to just constantly remind yourself, okay, I'm 13,000 feet. It's going to take me longer. And just yep. low and slow. Don't get all sweated up and, and burn, burn your lungs up. Just go slow. Drink lots of fluid. It, like I said, you got to put your whole hunt in slow motion almost. I like that. Find your low gear as you're hunting yeah. in and through there. When you're climbing those mountains, you know, you don't run up and not take a breath. You want to stop a few times on and up up the way. Um, you just have to pace yourself better at that high altitude. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And realize what when some things are out of reach. Mm -hmm. you, know, you find a pocket of elk and you may want to go the next day instead of this evening to go check them out. You know, plan a little extra time and, and everything and the distances you're dealing with with the elevation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the key to success when hunting that high altitude. And, and like we were talking about high altitude, Colorado definitely has it at 12 and 13,000 feet where you were hunting elk. That is so high to be hunting elk up there. But I know I hunt mule deer up there a lot at 12 and 13,000, but even nine and 10,000, you feel it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. high country. Yep. Yep. And in Colorado, everything's just so high there just so high but we have a lot of high country in wyoming not like they do i mean 13,000 feet in wyoming we'd be in the rocks mm -hmm. there's, nothing, there's nothing but rocks yep. at 13,000 in wyoming mm -hmm. but in colorado there's big grassy basins what they have at 13,000 feet we have a 10 exactly yeah we're so much further north and you guys in montana have it like nine yep you know and so if you go further north it changes as well mm -hmm. the elevations get lower but it's still anything for most guys, anything over 8,000 feet is high elevation. Mm -hmm. and you can get yourself into, into a, a jackpot if you're not careful. Oh, for sure. Well, and, um, you know, a lot of guys are coming from lower elevations, yeah. too. And uh, I think I was telling you that, that I heard the statistic, and I don't know if it's true or, or how true it is, but I've heard that you're 3% less effective for every 1,000 feet you go up. Um, but that's amazing, coming from five to 12,000, 7,000 feet of difference. You know, that's 21% less effective you are at that elevation. That's crazy to be able to slow your pace 21% to hunt effectively. Yeah, that yeah. is crazy, isn't yeah. it? Uh, that statistic sounds about right. It I mean, feels right to me. I've, based <laughs> on what I've experienced. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, guys need to really be careful in that high elevation. And, yeah, you're going to have to have to be careful as you're chasing those Marco Polos. That's way up there. Yeah, that is way up there. But it's, it's going to be exciting. I'm looking, really looking forward to it. Like I said, it's been a lifelong, long dream to do and probably not something I'd want to do at 70 years old. So I better, 
better do it now. I think. Yeah, do it now while you're in good shape. And yeah. yeah, good for you. You just got to commit to those things. And like you say, save your pennies, have that carrot out in front of your nose or that passion for something and, and go for it. And you never regret it going on one of those things, just the experiences you get. But it's going to be wild from start to finish, just even traveling there and then going through the airports with different, uh, totally different languages. And, uh, you know, it's a Muslim country over there, I would imagine, too. Yeah, you go through Istanbul. Turkey, oh, oh, yeah, okay. And then fly from there to, to Jigistan. Okay. And, of course, it used to be under Russian rule back in the Soviet Union days, and so there's a lot of remnants of, they speak Russian, most of them do, but they are a Muslim country. They're not heavy Muslim like Pakistan and Afghanistan, their neighbors mm -hmm. are. Okay. Um, I think mostly because of the Russian influence. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, it's a very interesting country. It's, it's mostly farming, ranching, you know, communities. Oh, wow. They do a lot of farming. Economy. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Livestock. Oh, wow. It's very similar. If you look on a map, it's like a really exaggerated version of Nevada. Really? Yes. You okay. Look, like, creek bottoms and river bottoms are all ag, green ag fields and whatnot, a few cities, and then the mountains are real sparse, not much timber, but open, just open mm -hmm. grass and shale and rocks. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, it looks like a very exaggerated uh, version of Nevada. Mm -hmm. And those uh, rams are going to be rutting. Um, well, you, I guess you'll you'll be counting. You'll have a guide there that'll know how to judge him and know what a good one is. But even a small one would look good to me when he curls yeah. a time and a half over. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, that one's mine. Yeah, I, as with any of this international stuff, when you do it, I mean, you you don't know really what you're looking at. I don't care if you mm -hmm. go to Africa or Asia or any of these places, Argentina. It's all, you're not used to looking, yeah. so it helps to have someone there that goes, okay, now that's a good one. I mean, usually if you put six of anything together, yep. guys like you and I can pick the biggest one because mm -hmm. you're comparing them. Yep. But they spread them out and say, one of these rams is 68 and all the rest are 65. Pick that one oh, out. There's no I couldn't way. do that. Yeah, me neither. But, you know, there's guys, specialists, that they know every little Every little thing about uh -huh. judging those rams, just like you or I would bucks or bulls, I guess. Yeah, those rams are tough to judge, too. So is that what a good one is? Is 65 inches? Is uh... Yeah, that's where they start to get big. Oh Anything my over 70 is monstrous, but most of the, like, you know, 65 is kind of the breaking point. Mm -hmm. between, uh, I put it in mule deer terms. 65-inch Marco Polo is like a 200-inch buck. Oh, wow. You get up to 68, 69, 70, you're talking like a 240. Oh wow! Two fifty mule deer, yeah, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you're going at the right time as they're rutting, yeah. And you say they're down lower, so they'll be traveling country looking mm -hmm. for ewes. I'm sure. Yep, the bands of rams where we're going actually uh, come out of Afghanistan mm -hmm. and down into Tajikistan. Oh wow! And so, and that's another thing about the rut that's real nice is they're lower and the sheep, the rams are banded up. Mm -hmm. Oh really? Yes. They're banded up yeah, during the rut. Still, oh, okay. They travel in in band groups. Okay. To rut, and so they'll have you know, a band of 12 rams, and there'll be one monarch in the bunch, the oh, one yeah. that's doing all the rutting, mm -hmm. and all the rest are almost like a family group. Oh. They protect him from other rams coming in okay. to the band, and he'll do all most of the rutting. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Bighorn sheep kind of do the same thing. But so it's a good, t good time of year to compare them against mm -hmm. each other. You know, you find 12 rams and pick the biggest one. It's usually probably a good chance it's a big one. Mm -hmm, for sure. And it sounds like Dan's going to film for you. He's a good yeah. film guy, I bet. Yeah, uh, he's, he's one of the best. Yeah, I bet. And he's so easy to travel with and eager to go and just like seeing, kind of like I was when I was his age. Mm -hmm. you know, I just traveled with my grandfather when I was his age and just seeing new places and everything's new and exciting mm -hmm. and always eager to go and He's a really, really good sport. Yeah. And he, a, good, he's, a great hunter. Oh, he's a great hunter, too. Yeah, yeah go-getter for yeah. sure. Yeah, he's always trying to gain knowledge. But, yeah, I bet he's a good partner to have on that because, really, your your film guy is almost like your hunting partner. You're always bouncing yeah. ideas off, and, and he's got to be dialed on his end of things to not screw things up as well. Yeah, you know, when you have film guys, and you probably know this, there's some that are, are cameramen. Yeah. And they, you got to always kind of keep your eye on them and, hey, <laughs> walk behind me, not beside me, get down, you know, and kind of help them along. And then there's others that are hunters with a camera. Okay. And Dan is a hunter with a camera. Yep. So you don't ever have to hardly ever watch what he's up to because mm -hmm. he knows how to move around animals. Yep. You know, especially when you're in close because he's a bow hunter. So 
the chances of him spoiling a hunt are almost none. Oh, that's you know, cool. Which yep. is nice. Yeah. Because some guys are really good with a camera, but you know how it is. They don't know yep. how to move around wildlife. You know, they're always trying to peek up around your shoulder or you're down crawling below the the sky, the horizon, and you look, and they're standing up behind you, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, for okay. sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, well, and a hunter with a camera that has a really good eye for it, too. Yeah. He's got a good eye yep. for shots and angles and things, exactly. too. So. Huh, way cool. And then it sounds like he's going to have a secondary tag, or he talked he might have an Ibex tag over yep, there. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to get an Ibex, hopefully, and, uh, you know, he's going to – He's a hardcore bow hunter. He just really wanted to hunt with a bow. <laughs> Brian Martin, who we're going with, is like, uh, just leave the bow at home. Uh -huh. It's not really feasible. I mean, yeah, a few people have done it, but it's definitely a long way to go to to try with a bow. That's a long ways to go, and not that you can't harvest them with a bow, but you guys are also going to hunt Marco Polo, and you know, you you guys yeah. just have other goals and ambitions. It's not like he can just go hunt those things for 10 days and go stalk them and mess up a bunch, so no, I understand why, but I bet it kills him not to bring his yeah, bow. Yeah, it did. Uh, Brian told him, well, you know, for your first one, let's go with the rifle, and if you want to come back, bring your bow, and we'll spend the whole time just trying to get one with a bow, mm -hmm. but then it won't be as tough of a pill to swallow because you already have one but, yeah for sure but it's it's a, a long tough place to go to uh to bow hunt it's just yeah. so open well and you have to be willing to eat your tag and that's the tough thing for us bow hunters on these yeah. huge hunts is that you spend that kind of money for a tag and and you want to get one and be successful with a bow there's just no guarantee and there's no guarantee with a rifle either it can be tough but at least your odds are a little bit better yeah it's like those bow hunters that shoot those rams those sheep i always look I have my hats off to them I oh say, my gosh to go up there with a bow in hand and just be willing to eat it eat a tag and a hunt of that magnitude more power to them because that is really really a, a honorable thing to do isn't it You're completely dedicated to the sport at that point I, I, <laughs> hats off to those guys oh i'm telling you yeah you spend that kind of money and go on this huge you know lifelong dream hunt and then to take your take your bow and 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 probably come back without anything or might you know at least there's a chance for it uh yeah that is commitment to it for sure yeah some of those guys have gone stone sheep hunting and it takes them three or four hunts to get one with their bow finally you just oh my gosh oh my gosh because you know canada they don't they don't uh, loosen the the requirements for bow hunters this still has to be full curl mm -hmm. i mean it's that ramp still got to break the, the bridge of the nose mm -hmm. rifle bow does not matter oh man you know and, mm -hmm. and so it that's a tough tough hunt mm-hmm to eat three trips like that yeah. to harvest one. But, uh, you know, I bet it means a ton to them when they're done. And, and then, like you yep. say, hats off to those guys. That is commitment. Yep, exactly. Yeah. For me, for a $300 mule deer tag, <laughs> taking my bow, it doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle to the wind of what they do. But, uh, no, that's commitment. Wow, good for you. That's that's just going to be an awesome trip and an awesome experience. Yeah, so, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. So you got that, and then we'll see what you draw on the draws. Yeah, um, see what I draw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully luck's on your side this year. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I'll get some stuff down the southwest. I've got a lot of points for Arizona and, and Nevada. Maybe something will pan out mm -hmm. down there on a year like this. Would be pretty nice. Mm -hmm. You know, how those draws are. You just don't know. You I don't. Mean, some states you do. Wyoming, yeah. Colorado, you can kind of tell. But states like Nevada, you just don't know. The I way know. The draw works when you really start tearing apart how the system actually works. You just, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, and sometimes you think you got it figured out and you get blanked yeah, anyways, exactly. you know, yeah. Uh, lady luck can, can either shine on you or shine against mm -hmm. you either way, you know. Yep. Um, yeah, no, it should be a great season. And then sounds like you're going um, up to the Northwest Territories as well with Ike. Yeah. Um, you guys are going to go up there and do a hunt up there like where your grandfather filmed, right? Yep. We're going up to the Northwest Territories in July. And it's kind of a an interesting thing. Uh, we're working on a... On a a film and it's going to be kind of a you know, then and now thing where my grandfather was up there in the 60s and mm -hmm. hunted was actually one of the first the first white man to hunt in some of that country with a camera and record it when it first opened up and then to go back 60 years later and, and hunt it again in that same area and kind of uh, see 
you know, then versus now. Oh, wow. Versus, yeah. You know, footage. And yeah. That. So it's going to be pretty interesting. Oh, that's going forward. To that's it. going to be a really good piece to put together with all the old footage and the new footage too. Yeah. That's going to make a really cool piece. Yes, I think so. Mm. And I think, you know, the accessibility of that country has improved dramatically from when he was there. But I think the hunting in itself is probably about the same. Oh, wow. You know, okay. I mean, they had a lot of sheep then. They have a lot of sheep now. It's it's very – the Canadian government has done a good job, I think, of controlling, you know, the, the populations mm -hmm. up there. And I don't think that has changed much. Mm -hmm. you know, but the accessibility has changed dramatically. I mean, mm -hmm. Roads and technology and uh, bush planes and all that stuff now that, that they didn't have as good a quality back then. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, GPSs. Uh, that alone is a huge advantage. Oh, it sure is. Back then with old school maps that were half of them were wrong anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Can you imagine navigating off those things? That's wild. Yeah, your grandfather, he went up there and did it. And they were up there. How many days did he go for? A whole summer. Um, wow. He, I think he left on that trip. They left in like June and they, he didn't come back until October. Wow. Yeah. In fact, he shot his ram off what they call a canal road. And that's where Ike and I are going. Um, the road they built at the very end of World War II, they were building a road up into northern into the Arctic of Canada to, to bring oil down for the war, mm -hmm. you know, making the diesel for the ships and whatnot, and mm -hmm. shoot pipe it to Seattle or whatever. They never finished the the road because the war ended, so they just mothballed it. Okay, this road they've since kind of connected it and whatnot, but that road was tapped in there at the same just before. You know, 10, 15 years before Gordon went in there, and that's okay. how they got access to that country. Otherwise, it was totally unaccessible. Mm -hmm. There was no roads, no airstrips, nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Canadian, Canadian government didn't even know what they had. That's the reason they sent Gordon <laughs> in there with a the camera, is let him... I mean, can you imagine that? This no, age? I can't. Saying, hey, Mr. Uh, Gordon, camera guy, we've seen some of your hunting films. You're the only guy we can find that does hunting films. Can you go into this piece of Canada... That we don't even know what's in there. The oh. natives tell us there's plenty of wildlife, but we don't know. Just go, you and your buddies go in there and film whatever you find. And, you know, you, you don't need hunting licenses or anything. Just kill whatever you want and film it and come back out and let us see what's in there to see if it's feasible to make this into outfitting areas. Since then, it's, it went into one outfitter's area named Stan Burrell. It's been broken up into six or eight pieces. Mm -hmm. That's how big and vast it was. Mm -hmm. But, oh, that is yeah, so wild. Basically a free card. Go spend the summer in there, open invitation, hunt whatever you want. Just you, cut you loose. Yeah. Huh? But a wild adventure up yeah. in that country. Yeah, you wild. had to be tough to, to even survive in that country a summer. No, there was no satellite phone. I mean, they literally you know, got dropped off on bush plane, rode horses in, and uh, no satellite phone, no nothing. They didn't even know if the maps were correct because mm -hmm. they were military maps from when they were making the roads. They surveyed all that country. Mm -hmm. The government did, the U.S. and the Canadian government. They didn't know if the maps were right, and they just planned a loop. You'll go in here and come out here and pick wow. us up here in, in a month. <laughs> and, you know, they were... If something happened, they would have no way to tell no. anybody. No, no way. They'd still be looking for the bomb. They sure would. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Well, that's going to be really cool for you guys to go up there and see that country that you've seen on film or on footage. Have you ever been up there before? I never have. Yeah, that's, that's wild. One. I've been to the Northwest Territories, but not that side of it, not in the uh, in those mountains. And so, you know, the Kinsey Mountains. So it's I've always, you know, my grew up my grandfather talking about it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and to go in there 60 years later is going to be a really special Special treat. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, what time of year are you going? July. July. Okay, yeah, that's a good July. time of year where yeah. you can really travel that high country yeah. too. Because that's what he, when he was there, so it'll match. The oh, match. okay, that makes sense. And so it, you know, it's before they start getting their weather, of mm -hmm. course, and so it's it's still kind of summerish, mm -hmm. but it, you know, still fall or getting mm -hmm. to fall. But there's, I think their sheep season opens either July first or July fifteenth. Okay, I think we're going in there about the Okay. Second or yeah, second hunt. Yep. And you think the game animals will be similar to what he saw in there? From what I've I've heard, I've talked to a lot of people. You know, you start doing these hunts and you do a lot of research. The good thing about these kind of hunts is it's not like anyone's honey hole. Mm -hmm. You know, like hunts down here. You know, no one wants to tell you oh where he killed that bull. 
but up there, you know, sheep and stuff, it, you know, people are open with the information mm-hmm. because it's, it's also limited. Yep. You know, and so the research I've done, it sounds like it's, it's as good or better than when they were, were even in there. Oh, wow. So, so it should be, should be pretty interesting. Yeah, that is way cool. Yeah. What an experience. Yeah. Good for you guys. Yeah. That's going to be fun to go see that country up and through there. That high country is just so beautiful, but the, the doll sheep, that is a really cool species. I love how wide and how they flare and then those white coats on them. They're just beautiful. Yeah, probably you know, arguably one of the most beautiful big game animals in North America. Mm-hmm, for you know, sure. Really, people really, I mean, it's just, I don't know how you would, would not like one of those things. They're yeah. Pretty, pretty neat animals. Yeah, and Gordon killed a really big one when he was up there, right? Yeah. Wasn't it like 40 or 40? No, I'm, his was... His stone's the biggest, but his doll was big as well. It was like it was over 170, so it's Boone and Crockett, and it was 43. Oh, that is wild! But it was right there yeah. off the road, and you know the way that worked is he and his buddies went in there and hunted for a month and got their stuff, and they shipped them home. Then Gordon, he was a gunsmith by trade, and he knew a lot of these gun guys or the old gun riders in the 60s, and he mm-hmm. had some of them fly in to take them hunting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and write about it. That was part of the deal with the Canadian government because it was the stories that were going to bring the hunters the next year and open this country up. Oh, okay, so that makes had, sense. Like uh, a guy named Duncan Barnes, Larry Kohler, these old guys that were gun writers for Sports uh, Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Of all things, you know, they don't have guns and hunting in that magazine nowadays, but back <laughs> yeah. then they did. Yeah. The whole section was outdoors, and so those mm-hmm. guys came. And and uh, they were filled out, and they looked up on the top of the peak, and there was a big uh, band of rams, one really big one from the canal road where the base camp was, and Gordon hiked up there. And Larry Kohler watched it happen through the spot and scope, and it took him two days to get up there. Oh, wow. And then he you know, literally pretty much walked the ram down and shot it. He was a go-getter, too, yeah, wasn't he? Was he was a go-getter. Yeah. Definitely a go-getter. Oh, man, that is so cool. Well, yeah, no, good for you guys. It sounds like you guys got an awesome fall planned out. And- and like you say, hopefully uh, supplement with some other good tags around and hopefully the Southwest down in there. And, and yeah, we'll just play it by ear and plan a, a little bit different strategy this year with the winter range and the winter habitat. But uh, I'm sure there's going to be some big critters hit the deck somewhere. Yep. Oh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a, an interesting year for sure, but mm-hmm. it's going to be no lack of lack of uh, big animals. Just mm-hmm. maybe not as many as we're used to seeing, but we, we might have been a little spoiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks a bunch for sharing all this information with our listeners. This is just such valuable information for us all to have right as we're coming into permit season. So thanks a bunch for sitting down and sharing all this information with us. You bet. Thanks a lot for having me on the show, Brian. Yeah, we'll do it again. Okay. Okay. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Uh, really fun episode there with guys, some just super information. And I, I love that I joke around that it's like sitting down with the Oracle, but it really is. He's so plugged into Western hunting. And and, and so I, I thought there was some some great information in there and, and uh, wanted to just get that out to you guys for applying for hunts for 2017. And and I, I just love this platform of podcasting where you have this long form conversation. You know, I really get to know Guy and get to know his personality better. And, and he's got some just awesome hunts coming up. So I, I can't wait to see those coming out in the future. And, and you know, he's he's right. You know, he, he's going on this big hunt that he's saved for for the last 10 years. But you you do. You just have to go for it in life and, and go for it in hunting. And it's what all of us really love to do and really enjoy and you you got to just save your pennies and, and do what you love to do as much as you can in this life because, you know, you're just not here forever. And, and uh, so I just, I really respect that. I really think that's cool. Um, and again, just really fun sitting down with Guy. And I, I can't wait to do more of these with him. Uh, he is just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And, and to be able to, to sit down and ask questions and do this one-on-one stuff with him is just a treat for me. So uh, really enjoy it. Hope you guys enjoy it too. Um, 
Uh, I want to thank again Savage Arms, um, building just super accurate rifles and, and sponsoring the podcast. So we sure appreciate that. And and with that, guys, uh, gosh, keep working hard out there. And oh, oh and uh, I just want to, I, I always want to thank you guys for all the support you give me on the podcast. And and I want to thank you too. We, you know, I'm running that Instagram page and that Facebook page, and you guys have been great at at following that. So. Um, uh, thanks a bunch for all the support guys. We really appreciate it over here. And, and, and like I always say, I'm just going to continue to work hard to get better at, at, at interviewing and, and get better at, at getting information out of guests is, is so we can just spread this, this information. And so we can all learn and we can all get better. And I, I want to see you guys be successful this season. And I, I see so many of your guys's posts where you guys are out working hard and, and putting in the hard work now to pay off during hunting season. And, and and I just think we've turned a corner with the with the Western hunting now, where you know it it is almost like this extreme sport that we're that we're all working to find success, and and me included. You know, I I, I am just I'm working my butt off right now in, in trail runs and shooting my bow and planning for hunts, and and I I just absolutely love it. I love immersing myself in in Western hunting, and and I'm just always theorizing and working on how to become better and in different advantages and working through my gear and working through you know my diet but it it just helps me become a better person I I just having passion in your life is so important you know I I think if anything that's the secret to life is having passion and I have a passion for western hunting as well as as being a good husband and a good father but you know being able to to go do these hunts and have the support of my family you know it 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 makes me want to be better in the end and better at all facets of my life but uh it's just such a such a great thing that we have where we have passion in our life and something we really enjoy so keep working hard uh again guys really appreciate the support and uh, we're just going to keep getting these things out to you um so i'll check in with you guys next next week.